Um, yeah, as Jeff said, my name is Jack. I'm a youth leader here at King's Church. Thank you, Jeff. Um, I've been upstaged already, haven't I? I didn't stand a chance. Um, if you're visiting here this morning um, because you're here not to see me, obviously, but to see maybe a family member or a friend, um, a child who is in the nativity, you're especially welcome. Also, if you're visiting for the first time here this morning, you're welcome. And if you're just a church member, you're also welcome as well. Don't feel left out. Um, and what we're looking at this morning together, briefly with me, is what's the point of Christmas? What, why is Christmas a big deal? Why, what's the point of the nativity play? I mean, that's my title this morning. Is nativ- it should come up, hopefully. Uh, nativity, what's the point? I mean, why do we have this? This nice little story with animals and shepherds and wise men, a nice donkey, a little bit of singing... Why do we do this every year? Does it really make a difference to real life? Or is it just so that we can have some little children do a nice little performance, make our hearts melt and have a little bit of a laugh? Well, partly that's why we do it every year. But there is so much more to it. This morning, I'm going to make the claim that actually this nativity, this Christmas story flips the world and turns it completely upside down on its head. It completely changes everything. And actually, it's the beginning of the answer to all of the world's problems. And I know that's a ridiculous claim if it's not true. But I think it is. And I want to start by asking you all a question. And I'm not expecting you all to shout out answers or raise your hands to to give an answer. But I want you to think about this question and think up an answer in your head for just a moment. And the question is this, what is wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? What's that thing that if we took it out of the world and we got rid of it, suddenly everything would be okay? Suddenly everything is just right. Loads of people have pondered on this question. If you don't believe me, there's a wonderful website out there called whatswrongwiththeworld.com. And people can submit whatever answer that they think is wrong with the world. And many of them are ridiculous and silly, things like your face. Or many of you parents will probably agree, things like stepping barefoot on a bit of Lego. That's what's wrong with the world. But I'm saying at a serious level, and there are many serious answers on that. Seriously, what is wrong with the world today? And if you looked on that website or if you went out and you asked people... We're not going to do a straw poll. We don't have time this morning. But I think if you ask people, it kind of falls into one of two categories or a combination of both. And the first category is people would say, what's wrong with the world? Well, if we could stop people from doing evil things to one another, if we could stop people from doing evil in this world, suddenly everything would be okay. Because people, they're unjust There's murders that happen all over the world all the time. People are oppressing other people. There are wars that go on. People are greedy. There are rapists. There are paedophiles, racists, sex slavery. It's all horrific. If we could take this evil and remove it from the world, suddenly everything would be okay. Then the world would be fine. And other people, they go, yeah, well, I see that. But actually, I think there's more to it. Because even if we got rid of the evil from the world, the second category is this, there's still death. There's still pain. There's still suffering. Even if people don't do bad things, there are horrific things that happen all over the world. 
We've seen it just recently in the Philippines. There are tsunamis, tidal waves. There's volcanoes. There's sickness, cancer. There's death. And so these aren't things that anybody in those have done anything particularly wrong, but there's still tragedies which happen which are just awful. For the world to be a better place, we don't just need to remove evil. We've got to remove death itself. And when it comes down to it, and people are asked seriously, on a serious level, what's wrong with the world? We would say, it's evil and it's death. And you know what? The Bible agrees. The Bible says that the problem of the world is evil and death, or sometimes, as it often puts it, sin and death. So that's deep. That's heavy going after a nice little nativity play. But what I'm saying is that little story that those guys just performed in front of us is the beginning to the answer of all the world's problems. And when I say that, it's the Bible's answer. It's God's answer to the problem of sin and death. And that is a huge claim, isn't it? But I believe it's true, and I'm going to explain why that's the case this morning. So what we're going to do is we're going to summarize the entire Bible in about 15 minutes, and then we can all go home. Um, So... The story begins, and we're in a garden, and some of you will know this story, and it's where God has created everything, and everything that he's made is good. It's not just good, it's very good. It's all going well. Human beings have this wonderful, unbroken relationship with their creator, with God himself, and it's going, it's going really well. They're living in a good world, everything's great, and the human beings, they're not doing evil, and they don't die. It is wonderful. But instead of accepting this great relationship with God, the story goes on, and human beings decide, actually, I don't want God to be the boss of me. I kind of want to do my own thing. I want to be my own God, so to speak. And so they do their own thing. And due to that, the Bible says that evil and death enter into the world. Now, many people have heard that story before. um, And if you know that story, you will know about this guy. No, he's not real. It's rubber. But this guy is the snake. And he is the evil guy in the story. He's the villain of the garden. And the story goes on. And there's this bit after evil and death come into the world. And he comes in and he's destroyed the harmony between man, woman and God himself. And the snake is the evil person. And he's kind of evil and death personified. And what many people kind of forget is that immediately after the woman and the man have done wrong and sinned, as the Bible says, that God says this to the snake. It should come up. Is it not going to come up? Because I haven't got it written in front of me. I need it. Come up. (laughs) Here we go. And he says, This is God speaking to evil and death, personified in the snake. He says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In other words, God's saying, I'm setting up. There's this this war, this battle. There's enmity between the snake and human beings. And snake, guess what? 
you're going to meet your match. There's going to be this guy who is going to be born of a woman and he is going to crush your head. You're going to strike his heel. It's going to be painful. It's going to hurt. It's going to be awful. But sin, evil, death, Satan himself, you will be in this battle with the offspring of a woman. And that's the beginning of the story of hope for the whole world. But it's a bit vague, isn't it? It says someone born of a woman. Well, that narrows it down to about 80 billion people who've ever existed. You're not telling me that's the guy in the nativity story, are you? It's too vague. So what I want to do to show this point, I'm going to have an illustration. And Alex is going to come up and he's going to help me. So come on, up you come, Alex. Stand, stand, stand here. Now, you're really tall. You're not used to that, are you, Alex? Um, so... <laughs> The aim of the game this morning is we're going to try and identify who Alex is. We're going to narrow the field down and we're going to work out who he is. Okay? Alex, for this demonstration, you're going to be the offspring of a woman. Okay? It's hard to imagine, but you're going to be the guy who's going to crush the head of the snake. So the snake's going to be here, put your foot on its head, stand in a victorious pose. Yes, get in there. Right, you might be there a while, so make sure you're comfortable, okay? So, the aim of the game is Alex is the guy who crushes the head of the snake, and we're going to work out who his, what his identity is, who he actually is, okay? But at this moment, it could be anyone. It could be absolutely anyone. We know it's a human being born of a woman. So, you right there, Alex? Snake's not biting too hard? No? Okay. And we get... To this bit, and so in the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 22, there's this bit where God is speaking to a guy called Abraham. And Abraham, he wasn't a person who believed in this particular God, but God met him. And he says this in Genesis chapter 22. And this is God speaking to Abraham. He says, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and you've not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand in the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So when God says to this bloke, what he's saying to him is that, hey, it's through your offspring, your family descendants, that I'm going to save the whole world. That this destruction of evil and death is going to come. It's through you. God says, I'm starting to give clarity. I'm starting to narrow the field. It's not just any person, but it's someone in your family tree. So it's going to be someone from Abraham. Show, show everyone. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So Alex is going to be someone, the snake crusher is going to be someone descended from Abraham. And then we're going to jump on a little bit further. We're going to fly through this. We've got Genesis chapter 26, where God is saying this. Now, there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine in Abraham's time. And Isaac, one of the sons of Abraham, uh, went to Abimelech, uh, king of the Philistines in Gerah. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I will tell you to live and stay in this land for a while. And I'll be with you. And I will bless you, for to you and your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. 
I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give them all these lands, and through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So God says to one of Abraham's sons, this guy Isaac, he says, it's not just going to be anyone, it's going to be through your descendants, Jacob. It's not going to be your brothers, but yours. So he's narrowing it down once again. And so we see that this offspring of a woman will be from Abraham and will be from Isaac. So, And then we don't have time to read it, but then there's Isaac's youngest son, a guy called Jacob. He gets the blessing in a line that says the snake crusher, he's going to come from you. So we see that this offspring of a woman will become through the line of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Jacob. So it's kind of narrowing the field. And so by this point in Genesis, we know that the the snake crusher, the savior of the world, he's going to be an Israelite. He's going to be from the people of Israel. And then we get to this bit in Genesis chapter 49. And Jacob, he has 12 sons. And you can almost hear it, the musical pop into your head right now. You can see them all lined up, dressed in gray and black, apart from one in a multicolored top. And they're there. And he's going through and he's trying to work out which one of his sons are going to be the one with the blessing. And he goes through them and he goes, Reuben, it's not going to be you. You're a little bit unstable. Nice. And he goes up and he goes, Simeon, Levi, it's not going to be you. You guys, you're a little bit violent. You get a bit stabby out there, don't you? So he goes on and eventually he goes to Judah and he goes, Judah, it's you. And so he gives him this. It's light of Judah. And it says this in Genesis 49. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hands will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son will bow down to you and you are a lion's cub. Oh, that was pathetic. Come on. Uh, there we go. Okay. Uh, move on. Move on. You'll be a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches. He lies down. Like a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of all the nations shall be his. And so there... So now, this quite clearly isn't a scepter, but it's the best I could do. This is a hockey stick, and, uh, but a scepter was a, a rod uh, that a king would hold out as a sign of authority and power. And so he's going to be someone who is authority and power. That's just a walking stick, mate, if you hold it like that. Come on, get in the game. Okay. It's a symbol of rule and authority. So it's going to be, this man is going to be someone who rules, not just as any bloke, but as a king. He's going to be a guy who crushes sin and death, but he's going to be a king and he's going to rule over all the people and all the nations across the globe are going to come to him and say, we follow you and we obey you. Okay, and then we get to this bit. We're going to skip ahead again to Numbers chapter 24. And in this, this is um, a a guy called Balaam speaking, and he is a foreign prophet. He's not from the Israelite people, and he tries to bless, uh, tries to curse Israel because that's what they tried to do because they were like enemies, but he found that he couldn't. God kept intervening, and he ends up saying this. The prophecy of Balaam, son of Bor, the prophecy of the one whose eyes see clearly, the prophecy of the one who hears the words of God, who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate and whose eyes are opened. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. 
A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush foreheads of Moab and the skulls of the people of Sheth, which symbolize evil and death. He says, do you know what? I see it too. I'm not from these people, but God has spoken to me. And I know that it's out of them that there's going to be this saviour who crushes sin and death. And a symbol of that is going to be a star which rises up. I made this myself this morning. I had to label it just in case it went wrong um, and you couldn't tell. So there's going to be a star which demonstrates that this is the guy who's going to save the world. And then we're going to jump on again and there's two Samuel. 2 Samuel, I know we're flying pretty fast here. 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 16. And it's God again speaking to the king at the time, this guy called David. And he says this. He says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Before me, your throne will be established forever. It says, one of your descendants, David, one of your family members is going to be on the throne forever. So this guy, he'll have a star, he'll have a scepter. He is a king in the line of David who will rule forever. So he's a king, got enough hands and a mouth. Um, And not only is he descendant of David, but he is a king. You got a crown? There we go. Look at that. Looking good, Alex. Okay. And he's going to be a king forever. So we're seeing as we get through the Bible, as we get through this word, the the field is narrowing. Suddenly we're starting to focus in on which is this guy who's going to save the whole world. But is there any more? Does the Bible say anything more than this? Yes, it does. There's Isaiah chapter 9. And this is the classic Christmas Eve reading, if you ever watch carols on Christmas Eve. And it says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government, And peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. It's saying in uh, Isaiah that there will be this time where war will end. Peace will come. Sin and death will be crushed. It will be this descendant of David. But it's more than that. He'll be known as Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God. This is not just any old child, but this is going to be a child who is God himself in human form. With an eternal kingdom, an everlasting kingdom that's going to be growing. And there will be increasing justice going throughout the world. It's, it's not, he's not saying that it's going to be suddenly, overnight, it just appears. Suddenly there's no more sin, there's no more death. But what he's saying is that there will be this decisive moment where sin and death is beaten and then from that point on there's going to be this um, ever-growing kingdom of justice and peace which keeps getting larger and larger. There's going to be these ripples of peace and justice which go out through the pool of this entire planet. Until it's totally transformed. And there's so much more in the Bible which we don't have time to read and to go through. But it goes on to say that he'll come from Bethlehem in the book of Micah. That's where he'll be born. That's where he'll come from. That Isaiah goes on to say that he will be born of a virgin. That doesn't happen every day. It's something. Keep going. It's all right, Alex. Not much longer. Um, 
<laughs> it goes on, and it goes on to say that he'll be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. He'll, he'll be known as God in the presence of his people. It goes on to say that he'll make Galilee glorious and a fantastic place. He might live there. He might do some amazing things there. It goes on again in Deuteronomy to say that he'll be a prophet who's better than Moses. Moses spoke God's word to the people. He is going to be the true word of God to his people. It goes on to say in Zechariah that he will enter. Um, sorry, in Psalm 110, it says that he will be a priest forever. He's going to represent human beings to God and he's going to give an offering which no other priest could possibly give. And it goes on to say in Zechariah that he will arrive to Jerusalem on a donkey. That's a weird one. It actually seemed to happen, but it's a sign that he will be humble. Most people ride into the town on a big white horse declaring victory and battle. It says that he's going to come in on a donkey, humble like other people. He's going to come in. And it goes on and on. And the point of it is this. The offspring of the human being, this this son of a woman, this person who's going to crush the snake's head, destroy evil and death, is going to be this person who's descended from Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He's in the line of Judah, an Israelite, a king in the line of David, born in Bethlehem, making Galilee glorious known as God within a kingdom which will never stop growing, entering Jerusalem on a donkey with justice and peace which continues to advance, born of a virgin, is a prophet, priest and king. The bottom line is it's Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. This is the person who crushes sin and death. It's, he is the reason why Christmas is so important, why this nativity is such an amazing moment. Because it's this moment where God in human form suddenly steps in and says, enough is enough. The serpent needs to be crushed. Thank you, Alex. You can now sit down. Take it with you. Thank you. There is... There will be a day where this world, where there'll be no more evil, there'll be no more death. And it's true because Jesus Christ has come. That he fulfilled all those promises that we looked at and actually hundreds more. Taking on sin and death himself. And actually it's more than just being born as a baby but it's growing up as a man where he took sin and death on as himself and he carried it to a cross where he was crucified, died, absorbing all sin and death that has ever happened and ever will happen upon himself, upon his own shoulders, completely destroying their power. And he demonstrated that because he didn't stay dead. He rose from death, showing that there is now no victory and instead there is freedom over sin and death. And we, need to be, we no longer need to be caught by this binding of sin and death because Jesus has provided a way instead where instead of sin there's forgiveness of sins where instead of death there's life resurrection life which can never be undone and Jesus stands as an offering and he says if you follow me if you trust me and believe in me you'll have your sins forgiven and you'll have everlasting life real life with real meaning And that's the point of the nativity. And to end with, if the band want to start to come up, they're going to be obscured by this, but it's fine. 
I just want to talk that there is a response that needs to happen to this. And there are different responses that you may have, which are the same responses which people had at the time of Jesus' actual birth. There's a guy called Herod who was king at the time, and he was angry. He was livid. He's like, I don't want anyone to be king but me. I don't want someone else telling me what to do. And maybe that's you. You're going, I hate this idea that there's someone else who is a ruler over me. Someone else who has their demands on my time, on my money, on the way I live, on what I should do. I hate that idea. And, and Herod wanted to destroy this. He wanted to get rid and wipe out this would-be king. And a lot of people have that reaction today. They hate the idea that they have to submit to the rule of Jesus. And so they not only say, I'm not going to listen to you, but they actively oppose it. I don't want to have, they ridicule you, they mock you. There's guys like Richard Dawkins, who they've kind of made a career out of this, that I just hate Christianity and I'm making it my mission to get rid of it. Other people were sceptical. There's a guy called Zechariah, who's a really old man, and he kind of heard this and he kind of went, how's that going to happen? I want to see some evidence. And some people are like that. Maybe you're like that here this morning. You're going, look, I'm not angry about this. I'm not trying to wipe it out and get rid of it. In some ways, it sounds good. It sounds compelling. It sounds impressive. But I want some evidence before I'm going to believe. And if that's you, then I'll say, as soon as we're finished this morning, come and speak to Jeff uh, or myself. Because in January, we're going to be holding an Alpha course here at this church. And it's a fantastic time where you can explore some of the evidence of Jesus. The evidence of his life, death and resurrection. And have a look at it. It's a relaxed atmosphere. And you can really look at whether it's true or not. And lastly... Maybe you're here this morning, you're like Mary or the shepherds or the angels, and you're just joyful. You're going, yes, this was the moment where Jesus came to restore our relationship with, with God, to crush the power of sin and death so that we can be forgiven and we can live life and life to the full. And if that's you, then celebrate it. Celebrate it today. Celebrate it over Christmas. And let's celebrate it every day for the rest of our lives. Because that's the reason for our existence. To worship God and his great grace that he gave through his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So what we're going to do now is the band. We're going uh, to play a song hidden behind a stable. And we're going we're gonna to sing one last song to celebrate and worship Jesus for what he's done uh, for us on the cross.